Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been sponsored by Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts. Himalaya was nice enough to reach out and make me an editor's choice, so now they're a sponsor. Check them out at Himalaya.com or in the App Store. I'm excited to be here today with Jane Green. Jane is the author of many best-selling novels, including The Beach House and The Sunshine Sisters. Her latest book, The Friends We Keep, debuted early this summer. Jane's novels have been published in 25 languages. She has more than 10 million books in print worldwide. A graduate of the International Culinary Institute in New York, Jane is an avid cook and gardener. Originally from the UK, Jane currently lives with her husband and children in Connecticut. Thanks so much for coming on, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs> Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So, Jane, can you tell listeners, please, what The Friends We Keep is about and what inspired you to write this story? So, I'm going to talk about the inspiration first, okay. which was that I realized that when I started to think about writing a new book, I was probably 49 or 50 when I started writing this book. And I always draw from the themes of my life. And I started to realize that I have lots of friends and, and a great life. And yet my life is much more isolated than I ever expected. And partly I blame technology. You know, I think we're all so busy hiding behind our phones and our screens that we're not connecting with people face-to-face in the way we used to. And and the busyness of life. And, and I realized as well that we're about to be empty nesters. In a couple of years, the kids will all be gone. And Every time my husband and I went out for dinner with friends, we'd always end up having the same conversation, which was, hey, you know, why don't we buy a piece of land somewhere or or a big farm and we'll all have like a tiny house, we'll all have our own space, but then we'll have a communal barn, excuse me, with a kitchen and a living room so we can all go into what Jung called the afternoon of life with the people we love most and everybody, we're all so excited about this and I thought... Hey, there's there's something in this. I this is, I think, what I need to to be the theme of my new book. So what I did was I took a group of people who meet at university in the UK in the 1980s. Half are American, half are English, and they live together at university. They become best friends, and they swear that they're going to be friends forever and ever. But of course, life gets in the way. They graduate. One of them is harboring this great secret. So she really has to withdraw from the others. So we follow them individually throughout their lives. And and Evie is a model who then is in an abusive marriage and a single mother. We have Topher, who's a soap actor, who is gay, but has tremendous issues with intimacy. And then we have Maggie. And all Maggie has ever wanted is a big country house filled with animals and children. And she doesn't get to have the life that she wants. And we follow them throughout the course of their lives. And then at their 30th reunion, by which time they've all completely lost touch, they all show up at their 30th reunion. And within minutes, it's as if time has stopped. They're swept back to those early days. And they realize these are our true friends. These are the people who, who know us best, who still, we still love each other. And what starts as a fantasy, hey, wouldn't it be great if we lived together, becomes a reality. And they all move in together. But of course, there is still this secret from the past. And because 
this is a novel and because this is a Jane Green novel, we know that the secret is going to show up and threaten to explode and destroy everything that they've created. So that is The Friends We Keep. I could listen to you talk all day. Oh, Seriously, <laughs> I, now I want you to like describe every book you've ever written and I'll just sit here and, and listen to all the books. <laughs> I will tell you something funny that a few years ago, about it was probably eight books ago, I said to my publisher, because I tend to talk if I give talks, and if I read, it's not very long, it's maybe half a page or a page, but every time I read, people would come up to me and say, oh, you should narrate your own audiobook. So I phoned my publisher and said, hey, I'd love to narrate. And they went, Jane, every author thinks that they can they can do their own audiobooks and they're always terrible and it just doesn't work. And I went, well, I think I, I might not be terrible. And they said, no, no, no. I said, well, could I at least audition? Because if I'm, if I'm no good, fine, but I'd love to try. So they sent over a radio producer and she was very grumpy. She actually became somebody I, I grew to love dearly, but she was very grumpy. And my husband opened the door and this woman's standing there with, a, with radio equipment and microphones. And my husband said, oh, come in. Jane's so excited to try out for this. And she went, oh, every author's terrible. <laughs> and, um, and she came into my little office and we started recording and I watched her face change. And so I have recorded my own audiobooks, the last eight books. So if you really like my voice, you could to. listen to me for I hours am. and hours I in the car. I am going yeah. to. This is <laughs> good for Good for road trips. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like all summer I've just been like, do, 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 do. Yeah. This will be a good well, now I can keep you company. Magic. You will. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. <laughs> so you mentioned before, because it was a Jane Green novel, there was a secret. And so what is a Jane Green novel to people who aren't familiar with your work? So it has changed enormously over the years. I started off, I was a journalist in my 20s. I was a feature writer, women's features. And I actually started writing my first novel after I read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. Oh, that was so good. And it, it was so good. And every man I knew was saying, oh my God, this book's about me. And every woman I knew was saying, oh my God, this book's about him. And I thought, God, no one's doing this for women. Of course, little did I know that that about two miles away from me, Helen Fielding was sitting in her little flat in Westbourne Grove writing Bridget Jones's diary. And I, so my first novel was called Straight Talking and it was about a single 30-something woman living in London. And it came out about three or four months after Bridget Jones's diary. And so suddenly the press leapt on it and said, this is a new genre, this is chiclet. Because what was interesting about that time, and this was the late 90s, that up until then, women's commercial fiction had been Barbara Taylor Bradford and Judith Krantz and Jackie Collins. It was all glitzy and larger than life and aspirational, but there was nothing that reflected the lives of real women. And we were the first to, to write about real women. So I went from writing about single women in the city in quite a raw, edgy way, um, and quite funny as well, quite humorous, to writing about life. I mean, and, and my books have very much charted the course of my life. So from being single, to marriage, to motherhood, to grief, to losing friends, to teenage... I mean, every, the gamut of, the, of things that life throws at you. I think what marks a Jane Green novel is an emotional resonance that I try and write very authentically. Ellen Hildebrand described it beautifully. We were doing an event together and she said, what you need to have to write books like ours is, is a tremendous amount of empathy without judgment. Mm. 
which I, I thought was so beautiful because you're writing about the human experience and I'm writing about real women. But even if you haven't been through the experiences that I'm writing about, you can put yourself in their shoes. You can feel what it would be like. You know, it's funny when you were saying writing about the real stories, I feel like this happened in art history too, that it was only at a certain point in time that people, that artists began painting what was actually in front of them. And that was yes. revolutionary at the yes. time. And you're like, what? Why were they not doing They were only painting biblical scenes or this side or the other thing. Right. And it's like the same thing with you. It's like you're, you're taking from what life gives you. And all of a sudden that's something new and different and amazing yeah. that somehow people hadn't thought of before. Yeah. So it's, well, thank you. I, I, I feel incredibly lucky and grateful to have written the right book at the right time. And in fact, that my first book to be published here was a book called Jemima J, which was an updated Cinderella story. So that was more of a fantasy. But, you know, my books have, have changed, my voice has changed and I'm working on something very different now, which I shall tell you about oh, yeah. a bit later on. Okay. And you've written 20 books, is that right? I, yes, I am halfway through my 21st. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Do you have other books that you never published? Like, do you, have you really written like 50 or do, no, you, or do they I, all go straight no, to I think a couple of times I have abandoned books after about 10,000 words. I think that's happened twice. Or I have rewritten them so completely that, that it's un, unrecognizable. It's still the same theme. And I always think, gosh, I should, should, I should dig those out and put those on Amazon or do something <laughs> with them. Yeah. Like bonus feature. Exactly. <laughs> so in this book, The Friends We Keep, it centers on the three characters who are at university together. And I was wondering, did their experience mirror yours in any way? So funnily enough, with this book, I have really drawn from my life and I don't always. Every book is different. But this one probably has a little bit more autobiography in it than than many of the others in that, yes, I did have two really close friends from university. There was an evil Ben and we I still don't know his surname, but I had a massive crush on this really grumpy, scowly boy called Evil Ben. Wow. And they used to absolutely send somebody running back from the pub to say, Evil Ben's in the pub. And, and I'd go scurrying out to the pub. So that was really lovely. I felt like I revisited those days. I will say I'm still in touch with them because the beauty of Facebook, which I'm very, very rarely on Facebook now, but of course you do get to friend the people from your past. And so we are still in touch. And we did have a little reunion about four years ago. And I have to say, it was just as it was in the book in that these are girls I haven't seen in 30, 35 years. And we all just, well, 30 years, it was 30 years. It was so comfortable immediately and so much fun and and it was it was just lovely so I absolutely drew on that for this yeah I had a recent college reunion it's the same people you spend so much time with you can just jump right back in like time yeah well even- I, I also think there's something very magical about those friendships because it's you're you're teetering on the brink of adulthood so It's before you've decided who you're going to be. It's before you've put those constructs up of of what kind of adult you're going to be. So they really know the real you. And I think there's a freedom in those friendships that even whatever age you are now, you're able to bring up the real you. And, And there's something so magical about that. I totally agree. So for any college girlfriends listening, <laughs> we're having a, a complete appreciation of that time and all of all of you. 
You wove in cooking throughout this book in such detail that I was like getting hungry. There was some omelet you made with feta. You like described all the ingredients. And I'm like, okay, I need to like find a way to go have this omelet right now. And then of course I read that you have a like culinary background. Yeah, so yeah. tell me a little more about that. But, well, it's not, the, the funny thing is I'm the, you know, my mom is a great cook. My dad's a great cook. My grandmother was a cook. We, you know, I come from a family of cooks. So food was a very big part of my childhood. And I learned to cook sitting at my mother's knee. But I always described my cooking as it was a bit like Russian roulette in that sometimes it was fantastic and sometimes it was terrible. And I was utterly fearless and and one of the stories that actually made it into a book I wrote years ago called Mr. Maybe. It was an absolutely true story. I was 21. I had a new boyfriend. It was the first time I was meeting his friends. I was desperate to impress them. So I decided to make a Thai green curry. I have no idea why. And when I went through the ingredient list, they they called for four large green peppers. And I went to my grocery store and they didn't have any large green peppers. They only had these Teeny tiny ones. So I figured, well, maybe 16 to 20 would equal, (gasps) yeah. So I made a curry that burnt my fingers off, actually, as I was slicing that. I mean, it was just so hot that nobody could get near it. You couldn't, you couldn't eat it at all. Jalapeno Um, curry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so I continued like this in that, you know, sometimes it was great. I never made a mistake quite like that. But Then about 10 years ago, I decided to take myself off to culinary school. And so I took a break. We were building a house anyway. So I I was sort of having a bit of a break at that time from writing. And I went off to what was the French Culinary Institute. I think it's now called the International Culinary Center. And I arrived there every day with kids. You know, they were all sort of late teens, early 20s and and going into a, a cooking career. And I just went and learned the science of cooking, actually. And I really loved it. I loved being a student again. I loved learning new skills. And my cooking is definitely much better now. (laughs) But my books have always been filled with food because it's such a a huge part of my life. And I wrote a cookbook as well. That's right. Yeah, a few years ago, I have a cookbook called Good Taste, which is all easy comfort food because I don't think anything in life should be complicated. I felt like for Maggie, your character, because she wasn't able to have children, cooking for her was like her main caregiving initiative, if you will. And all she could do is cook for her friends Mm -hmm. and withhold that when she was upset with Ben and all of this. So it's it's like the language of love, food. 100%. And I, I always say I show the people I love that I love them through food. And and I also want people, the minute you walk into my house, I want you to feel warm and safe and nurtured and I want to sit you at my kitchen table and feed you the kind of foods that make you feel loved. Well, now I feel bad I didn't feed you anything when you walked in my No, house. no, no. I, I have, trust <laughs> me, trust me, I've, I've had one and a half breakfast already today, so I'm very glad you didn't feed me anything. Thank you. I, I do say that to my kids, though. Even if I make them scrambled eggs in a hurry before school or camp, I'm like, do you taste the love? I put yeah. the love in there. Anyway. And by the way, they can is my answer because we can. Yeah. You know, you know the difference between going even going to a restaurant, you you can taste Absolutely. love and care in food. Yeah. Always. I feel like my husband's food, there's nothing like it. Yeah. You know, it's just something about it. And my mom anyway. So from food to drink. So Ben ends up not giving anything away. It was brought up early mm-hmm. in the book, but Ben has issues with his drinking, which affects Maggie. And 
at one point, her mother says to Maggie, this will pass. No marriage is good all the time. The most important thing in marriage is kindness, and Ben is a kind man. Even if he's drinking again, he will stop. He always does. You just need patience. So what did you think of that advice? Do you think that's the right advice for a mom to give a daughter? I, I well... What do you think? Not, I don't know. Ne- not necessarily. And Maggie isn't, she, she's close to her mother. She loves her, but they, they don't spend a lot of time together. And I think that's one of the sort of naive things that, that a mother might say to her daughter. By the way, I do think kindness is the most important thing in marriage. But I think marriage to an alcoholic is something quite different. And I have dealt with this many times because I, I have quite a lot of addiction in my background. So I, I am very familiar with, with addiction and with 12-step programs. And I've done Al-Anon a lot. And I've done living with an alcoholic and I've done being an alcoholic. And I just didn't want to go there. But I, I actually, well, I, I have conflicting views actually about, about alcoholism, partly because I've just, I'm, I'm or I am reading a book called Lost Connections by Johan Hari. And it's so fascinating. We, especially here in, in the Western, in America particularly, we tend to think it's 12-step or nothing. You know, you, you go into AA or NA or, you know, whatever is your, is your drug of choice to look for help for a higher power. And, and Johan Hari actually points out that, that countries that have less punitive penalties for drug use where people, communities gather together to look after people, addicts do much, much better. And there's a lot of scientific studies showing, you know, whether it's with mice and, and, and rats, but it is all about community, that, that if you put out a, a very addictive drug, the, the rats will always go to it unless there is a, they, they have, in isolation, they will always go to it. But when they build a community, they don't make those same choices, which is partly, I think, why 12-step programs work. It's about community. But so often when you're married, when you love somebody with an addiction, there is not, it's just as isolating. They call alcoholism a disease of isolation, but so often the partners, the children, the parents get ignored, but that is a disease of isolation too. And I think really that that's what happens for Maggie. She becomes more and more isolated. I don't think the advice is correct, but actually Maggie figures it out for herself because she solves the problem of isolation by moving all her friends in. Let's talk a little about Evie too. I don't want to ignore her. So Evie, who had a childhood actress upbringing, becomes a model and dives into Dexatrim during college, thanks to Topher's mom. She then has major body issue, a a journey, a a body issue journey, if you will. Tell me what you think about the effect of all of the different life stages and then how Lance, her future husband, body shames her Mm -hmm. so terribly. I mean, I could not believe what you had him Mm -hmm. say to her. I felt like, you know, what did she look like? Like, Mm -hmm. was it really, you know, tell me, just tell me a little more about the body image dimension of... uh, Evie's character. Well, that, again, um, eating disorders and and that sort of body dysmorphia and and body image and shame Mm -hmm. around food and eating is something I've I've written. Well, I wrote about it more in the earlier books, in Straight Talking, and Jemima Jay was was all about a girl who was very overweight, who met somebody online and then shed, you know, huge amounts of weight to to go and, and meet him. And discovered that it wasn't the key to happiness after all, by the way. And I think what was interesting for me with Evie, the modeling was interesting. I have a lot of friends who modeled and were ballet dancers. And there is so much craziness around food, particularly in the 
80s and 90s. And so that was how I, I got her plunged into the eating disorder. And then, yeah, her marriage with Lance, I think he she married a man who wanted a trophy wife. He wasn't interested in her mind. He wasn't interested in her. He was interested in having the most beautiful, the most stunning. And because he was abusive, she having having actually been quite relaxed around food, that was always Evie's drug of choice. And so when she realized she was married to this incredibly controlling man, her comfort again became food. And of course, the bigger she became, the more he shamed her because for him as a narcissist, she was the reflection. And so when when his wife was less than perfect, it, it made him feel that other people were looking at him thinking he was less than perfect. And I did love writing her journey, which was really, you know, approaching menopause that so many women, our bodies change. So however we've lived in our teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, suddenly you hit menopause. And for so many of us, and and I know plenty of women who spend three hours a day in pure bar and Pilates, and they look fantastic. And I can't do that. I have no interest. I have no desire. I have no time. And so part of me has had to accept that this is not the body I had even five years ago, let alone 10 years ago. And the beauty of getting older is that you do reach a point where looking at yourself in photos may be difficult at times, but you also reach a point where you just realize people are not looking at you thinking, oh my God, she's 20 pounds overweight. I can't be friends with her. And you reach a point where you realize you have to accept yourself because you don't have as much control as as you might have had when you were younger. And that's the journey that Evie has, just really reaching a place where where she learns to be ultimately the goal is to love yourself. But that's that's hard. That's a journey. And and she does it what with affirmations and and changing the, the narrative. And I think changing the narrative is so often something that we forget to do. Whatever it is in life, when you know, when we're feeling scared and or have anxiety, often often deciding not to feel that way is the first step in not feeling that way. Did you see in the paper this morning, I read this little thing that there was a study where if you freeze some part of the ovarian tissue and then re-implant it, you can delay onset of menopause by 20 years. It's worked for nine women. Oh my goodness. So anyway, they were saying well, this. You well, can delay, I don't know. You can I don't delay know. it for delay. 20 years. You can have it start 20 years later, which would then minimize the risk of osteoporosis. And I don't know. Just mm-hmm. it was. I'm not, not sure about that. Yeah. So. Not sure about that. I think, mm, wow, too late for me now. So, <laughs> well, terrible idea. Um, but, you know, the other thing that that I think is part of Evie's journey and all of their journeys, which has very much been part of my life, which ties into this changing the narrative, is I just, I always try and get this quote in because it, it's really the quote that changed my life. It's a psychology professor called Robert Emmons. And he talks about gratitude. And he said, gratitude is a sustainable choice for life that can be freely chosen for oneself. It is choosing to focus on blessings rather than burdens, on gifts rather than curses, and people report that it transforms their lives. And and I think for all of these characters, they all, whatever hardships they've come through, they they get to a place in their life where they realize that they have a choice. Mm -hmm. They They can focus on the good or they can focus on on the bad. Talk to me for two seconds about the process you 
go through to write your books? Where do you write? How long does each book take? So what time of in, day? Yeah, and I've always been a morning writer for years and yet I, I don't I can't write at home too many distractions. So I have always either gone to the library or or had a little office, but I like having other people around because I feel like I'm then accountable. I'm not going to play computer solitaire all day mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But for years, because when my kids were were young, I always made sure I was finished by lunchtime. So I probably wrote for three or four hours a day. And then I'd be done and I'd be back to being mum for the rest of the day. But now the kids are either gone or they're teenagers, they're self-sufficient. So I'm writing my 21st novel and I'm writing it completely differently to any of my other books in that I'm now in my office eight hours a day, but I'm still writing the same number of words. (laughs) And so... I feel like I'm putting much more care into the writing. So, so many of my books, particularly the earlier ones, were they felt almost like stream of consciousness. And, and yes, I go back in and edit and edit and edit, but I would just write very quickly and get it all out. Now I'm taking my time, and I feel like the writing is much better with the book I'm writing now than it has ever been. Now that it's your 21st, it's like your first adult novel, really, yes. right? You're turning 21. I like that. that. Yes. So what is it about, can you say? Yeah, it's very different. It is the story of the 29-year-old daughter of a Steve Jobs-like tech tycoon. So it's all Silicon Valley, it's all West Coast, and she was the invisible child. He abandoned her for the first few years of her life and then came back in, and and he is a mercurial difficult genius and she never knew where she stood with him he's very volatile he has a lot of rage but he can also be charming and wonderful but she has spent her life walking on eggshells and trying to win his his love his attention and his approval and she is has finally been allowed to work for his company and she's brilliant she she has a degree from harvard but she's meek and It ends up with him being diagnosed with cancer and he goes off for experimental treatment in Switzerland. And she has miraculously managed to pull off this this deal, not by her technical knowledge, but by, because she's a millennial, she understands it's about connection. It's human connection. And she happened to make a human connection with, with the woman behind this deal. And as a result, he puts her in as the interim CEO of the company. But once she's in... She's desperate to prove herself to her father, realizing that that he he did see her all along. She finds that she is just screwing up every step of the way. And there's she has a female mentor in the company. Um, they decide to sort of send her off on a world tour. And while she's away on this world tour, she discovers that they're using child labor to manufacture some of their technology. And she's horrified and she comes back to find her father's on his deathbed. The woman who she considered her mentor has taken over the company. She's been locked out of the office. And her father on his deathbed seems to have signed papers authorizing this. And so the rest of the novel is spent with her fighting for her fighting for her life and fighting for her father's legacy wow. and and going back in and 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 seeing if she can see not only stop the child labor but seize the company back. Um, that sounds so good. It's, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's very much the films that I loved 
it back in the sort of 80s and 90s were films like Working Girl. Me too. And Pretty Woman. And those, totally. those kind of female empowerment, wish fulfillment, and that's very much what this book is. So it's a real departure for me, and I am loving every minute of it. Excellent. Do you have any parting advice for aspiring authors? Yes, I do. Okay. I always say to people that writing requires a PhD. But in my world, that is persistence, humility, and discipline. And persistence because there will be roadblocks every step of the way and you you just have to keep going, fail forward. You know, if something gets in your way and stops you, keep moving. Just don't dwell on it. You just keep moving forward. Humility because it's particularly if you are an aspiring writer and a new writer, It's so easy to think, well, these are my words and they can't be changed because this is my voice. I I know what to say. But I would say choose one or two people who you really trust and ask for honest advice. And when they give it to you, listen to them. You've got to have humility. And then discipline because it's so hard to finish a book. And life always gets in the way. And I always say the greatest training I ever had was that I started off as a feature writer and I was on a daily national newspaper and every day I had an editor standing over me saying, Jane, we need a thousand words in an hour. And I couldn't say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm not inspired today, try me again tomorrow. I had to write a thousand words in an hour on whatever subject I was given, whether I felt like it or not. And that has served me so well. And that's what I, that it requires tremendous discipline. Set yourself a number of words or pages, and it could be, it might be 500 words, it might be half a page, whatever it is, but do not get up from your chair until those words are on the page. Wow, PhD, I like it, mm. very catchy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming oh, on. Oh, thank Time you, Books. Thanks for sharing your experience, and I'm excited for your next book. Thank you, it's lovely to be here. Thanks again to today's sponsor of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, Himalaya, the best app for discovering, listening, and organizing podcasts, Himalaya.com. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com.